life is being transformed into the likeness of Christ. When you become this follower of Christ, a penitent believer, baptized in his name, your life changes. By definition, it is no longer the same. Your identity changes. Your purpose in life changes. It's not that you don't get to keep doing the things you enjoy doing, but the focus of what those are now is not meant just for you. They are to glorify the Father in heaven. In other words, you are to make much of who he is in those arenas in which you apply your life, to make much of him with your life where you live, work, and play. In verse 9 of 2 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, the reason for that is Peter says, your objective now is to proclaim, make known the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. That's an identity change. That's a complete transformation of what was to what is in your life now, what is actively happening to you. And so you are immediately, as a Christ follower, whether you recognize this or not, placed in what Peter says, a war, a war of the flesh, a war of what's taking place. And you now have a different standard by which you apply things. You use God's standard now. You use the principles found in his word to use objective life and what you make decisions on and how you process those things. There's a new filter, in other words, and it becomes the word of God for you. You're no longer allowed the conduct that you used to indulge in, that we all used to be. All of us used to be that. We indulged in it because we loved it, didn't we? We liked it. We liked it a lot. Until Christ transformed our life. Peter says in chapter 4, So as to live for the rest of the time, meaning your life, you no longer do it for human passions. And that's a reference back to where we were last week. But for the will of God. That's the transformation that's taking place. And he goes on, for the, in the past, the time that suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, meaning unbeliever, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking, parties, laws, idolatry. And it, you know, again, again that's not a, uh, an exclusive list. It continues. With respect to this, they, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, are surprised when you no longer join in the flame flood of debauchery that you used to do, and they malign you. They see the difference. They recognize what's taking place in your life. And so they start to malign, criticize, persecute, if you'd like to use that word. But he continues, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, that's the price and privilege of being a Christian, a Christ follower. You will be maligned in some fashion. And fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, in this nation, we are still blessed and still have the freedom in which we can do that. We're not too worried about heavy persecution in that sense, like takes place in some other places. So you'll be slandered, you'll be made fun of, you'll be canceled, which is the current term that's being tossed around. But some form of persecution will show up. So the question is, how do you handle that? I know how I would used to handle that or want to used to handle that, right? Yeah, exactly. That's not, that's, not, that's, not, that's not an option anymore. That's no longer a part of your life. As much as it probably enters your mind, well, if, yeah, this is what I want to do. I get that. <laughs> I understand that perfectly. But God's word says, hey, let's give room for God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? And to give him room. When Jesus was reviled, when he was slandered, when he was maligned, as we've been seeing through the book of Mark, he didn't return it in kind. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. 
What did he do? And by the extension, what do we do as his followers? We entrust ourselves to him who judges rightly. That's what you do. Whether it's fair or not, whether it's right or not, all of those things. And that's really where we are even in, in culture. How are we going to apply these things in the pressure that you're now starting to feel and, and see in, in daily life? How do you do that? How do you prepare yourself for the turmoil that's coming? And so in the book of Acts, that's where we're going to kind of parachute in. So when you begin the book of Acts, all the, the book of Acts is Acts of the Apostles. It's early church. It's the history of what took place. So from chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, and so on, you'll see the same thing being repeated, and I just parachuted into chapter 4. And I just want to work through this chapter just to try to pull out some principles of what we do as Christian people. How do you respond? How do you respond in a God-like way that honors him, glorifies him in such a way that people take notice? Because that's what happened in the first century. I almost titled this sermon Preppers, <laughs> but then that was kind of like too much, maybe like the show or something. I don't know. I haven't watched the show, but I didn't want your mind, which is probably now drifting away to 50-gallon drums of peanut butter that are buried in your basement or something. I don't know, right? But it's that. You are now prepped as, as an eternal uh, uh, being. The preparation that you have as a Christian. Now, I'll joke about that a little bit because when I move my son, I'm like, hey, what is this stuff? <laughs> well, it's, he has some of that, <laughs> right? And that's okay. I get that. But the most important preparation you can make for your life is what's going to happen in the next life. Amen. What is your relationship with Jesus Christ? The next part of that preparation becomes once that is secure, how are you going to be prepared for what's happening in culture and where we live, work, and play? Have you prepared, have you prepared yourself for the greatest preparation need that you have, and that is a Savior in Jesus Christ? Can you live this life in just peace and freedom, regardless of the frustration you may feel and what you're seeing in culture, but know that you know that you know that you are saved in Jesus Christ, and knowing that comes at the price? Have you prepared for the greatest need you have? But in the meantime, how do you do life now? How do you glorify him? Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. That's the deal. And if you go to Acts chapter We'll just begin in chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1. He says this. As they were speaking to the people, they, the apostles, Peter particularly, the priests and the, uh, the captain, the temple, the, uh, the guards, the Sadducees, came to them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead. We did that a few weeks ago, right? Resurrection Sunday. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was almost evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of them came about 5,000. So that's kind of where we're parachuting in, right? They are the apostles. Peter's been doing this since chapter 2. There was 120, there's 3,000, now there's 5,000. And that just is the men. So you can double, maybe triple that. This is an extremely large crowd. Verse 46 of Acts 2, um, says they were attending the temple day by day. There was no place else for them to go, right? There was no church yet. There was no place for them to, to meet. That's where they were used to going. They had no place to go. This is where they all went. This is what they were doing. And these officials were greatly annoyed at what was happening. 
And Peter, as we go through this, that prior to this, there is a, a 40-year-old man that he is healing. And everybody sees this. He's been sitting there begging for years. In fact, it amazes me. I bet you Jesus walked past him and go, you know what? You're going to have to wait a little bit longer. <laughs> right? So Peter shows up and he heals him. And there's two large crowds. This man that, was, that everybody saw, everybody knew. And Peter preaches the same sermon over and over again. That you denied the Holy One. You denied the Messiah that Moses prophesied. You murdered him, but God raised him from the dead. And we all saw this. You saw it. We saw it. We were all there. Therefore, repent. Turn back so your sins may be blotted out. That was the message. And so you have the temple priests, the guards, the Sadducees. They're all hacked off because there's thousands of people in the temple now listening to this message. So they are greatly annoyed. Peter didn't apply for the right permits. He didn't ask permission. He didn't write clearance. Whatever that was, right? He just showed up because this is the temple of the living God. So you have in verse 3 the, those leaders that arrest them. Which is always bad for leaders or powers that be. Why? Because persecution always leads to growth. And that's verse 5. Whenever there's pressure, there are a lot, a lot of reasons for that. But at the top of the list, honestly, it gets rid of any uncertainty in your life. Because you're not going to be persecuted for something that you don't believe in. You're not going to be, be put out because of something that you're not certain of that is happening in your life, that God has redeemed you you won't do that. If there's any question whatsoever, that's where you're going to squirt out the side. And if that's the case, when that happens, in other words, there's no, there's no fence sitting here. And you are in fellowship with everybody else that is in the same mind with you, that unity of mind. To use Jesus' analogy, only the wheat will be left. There will be no tares amongst the wheat. So here's principle number one, beginning of verse three through seven. Principle number, number one is this. They submitted to the rulers. When persecution comes, no matter what happens, you're going to submit. They arrested them, put them in custody until the next day because it was evening. But many of those who heard and believed the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem Ananias, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. These are all, this is a family business, in other words. All these same men would have been there at the crucifixion, would have been in that, that so-called trial. Then they, they all knew this. They all were there. And when they set, uh, verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name do you do this? And Peter submits to them. They're arrested there is no, hey, I have my rights. There's no brawling. There's nothing but this understanding that God has them in his hand. And maybe, just maybe, remembering in their minds what Jesus told them and prepped them for, that this was going to happen. If you go back to Luke chapter 12, verse 11, Jesus says this. When, when they, the authorities he's referring to, Bring you in the synagogues and the rulers and authorities. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. See, Jesus was prepping them. This is going to happen. You have been chosen. 
This is the price and privilege of you being one of the 12 disciples. Most of all of them but one would be martyred. But this is the joy and the glory that you're going to give the Lord. And they relished in that. And they put two and two together and believed that God was working out his plan so that the message could be brought to these people. How else do you think you get before rulers? What, what option would you have to get to speak with the president or to walk into the Senate or some chamber locally here in the state or in Washington? Hmm? This was God's way of doing that. Now, I got to be honest, I'm not sure I want to sign up for that, you know, to get beaten, threatened, you know, all the stuff that you have to go through to get there. <laughs> But that's what these guys did. And they submitted to it. See, when you're obedient to the Lord, when you're living honorably before the Gentiles and find yourself on the other side of what they think and believe and in a bind of culture, your response and my response shouldn't be, oh, where is God in all this? Why is this happening to me? Why am I to be the one put out? It's this understanding that God is orchestrating something good through it. To see it through to the end, to see what God does through you and to you. First Peter two, or First Peter chapter, uh, chapter two, verse twenty. Peter says this: What credit is it if, when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure it? What's the point? You should be. You, you should get the punishment. But here's the key. But if you do good and suffer for it and endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let me ask you something. How many of you want to sign up for that? Right? No one's looking for this. That's the point. No one is looking for this. We want to honor God, glorify Him, bring the gospel, and should it come to this, then we'll submit. And here's why. For this, Peter says, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Jesus submitted to, and so will we. That's principle number one. Here's principle number two. Be confident in the Spirit's working in your life. Verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and the people and elders, and he goes on to explain why. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means uh, this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that is this name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Do you trust the Holy Spirit that he promised you to do and embolden you? Matthew 10, 20. Again, Jesus is prepping them. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're going to speak, what you're going to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Right? I love the connection. So we're kind of porting back from the Gospels and specifically Mark to see this actually lived out in real time. Jesus continues, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. John 14, Jesus is letting them know, I have to go. It's good that I go. The helper will come, the Holy Spirit whom the father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring you to the remembrance. Everything I said, he is going to remind you of all of these things. Do you rest in the Holy Spirit? Do you trust him to bring those things and remind you of the things that uh, God has taught you. Let me ask you something. Where do you find those things? You find them here. Maybe not as big as Bill's Bible. That's kind of cool. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should so I could read it better. <laughs> I don't know. Right? This is where you find it. 
Listen, Jesus isn't physically here anymore, and this is what he's left you to bring to remembrance. So what's the point? The point being is if you're not saturating your life with this, what's the Holy Spirit going to draw to your remembrance? Man, if the well is kind of empty, it's probably skim pickings at the bottom, right? You've got to be in the Word of God. So when you're in that gospel conversation where you live, work, and play, there's something that he's going to bring to mind. Say this. Respond like this. Even if people don't, you know, hey, you can't use the Bible because I don't believe in it. Really? Have you heard? I've heard that one many times. Yeah, so I don't care. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't mean anything to me. This is the word of God, and you're going to be judged by it, whether you think so or not. People need to know the wisdom. They need to know his wisdom. Why? Because of what we said last week. It's to silence the ignorance of foolish people, such as people who say, like the Sadducees, there is no resurrection. Daniel chapter 2. Blessed be the name and God of forever and ever, whom belongs wisdom and might. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise that you should give me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. He's responding to King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Second Chronicles 9, all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom which God had put in his mind. See it? Do you trust it? Have you ever had those conversations where when you're all done, it's like, oh, man, why didn't I say this? Oh, I should have done that. <laughs> Just trust him. Romans 11, oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment, how inscrutable his ways. You got to trust the Holy Spirit doing the work in you. See, if there's nothing for him to remember, it's really difficult. You're, you're cut off from the very source that can give you the power that you need to stop the, the ignorance of foolish people, to give you victory. Do you really cherish the word of God? Do you cherish what God is doing in you and through you, the power that you have through the Spirit? Or do you grieve him, obstruct him by ignoring the word of God? Listen, he has come to help and give you the means in which you can speak into this generation, into this culture. Let me ask you something. What is the Holy Spirit doing? Scripture makes that clear too, John 16. To convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Three, three main things. Those are the three main things he's doing. To convict the unbeliever of sin. Why? Because without the knowledge that you're a sinner, there's no reason for you to even seek out a Savior. If you don't understand the depravity of who you are without Christ, then, then you're not going to even bother. It's like, you know, you have this really do nice doctor that you like, and you come to me, hey, you, sh you should meet my doctor. Well, I'm not sick. <laughs> I don't, when I'm sick, I don't want to go to the doctor. <laughs> right? Why would I go to the doctor when I'm healthy or think I am? It's the same kind of idea. He's there to convict and not convict in condemnation, but convict in your need for a Savior. Do you understand the difference? It's kind of blended of both. But the conviction comes with that, your recognition when you look in the mirror and go, oh, I have fallen short of God's glory. And now you're, the, 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 nor, the, the godly response, the godly conviction, you'll be looking around, okay, what do I need to do? That was Acts chapter 2. Of righteousness, 
The Holy Spirit is shattering the pretensions and self-righteousness of the ignorant and foolish people who throw off God. There is no God. And you see all this happening in culture. You know, the, 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 the means in which God responds to his ethics, to morals, the standard of good that Genesis lays out, that the holiness code in Leviticus lays out, is all the character of God. And when you remove that, you get to create your own. And this is what Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry. He's re reiterating the goodness of God, the nature of God, the righteousness of God. And of judgment, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the fact that God is, the world is blind, lost, hopeless, without meaning, and under Satan's control. And you are seeing that lived out as a nation. Why is that necessary and important to understand? Because at that point, when you get that, the world, the world's systems, they cannot make right judgments as per God's standard. It is impossible for them to do that. And this is why you're seeing men can be women, women can be men. Marriage is all redefined, which isn't marriage at all. You're seeing all these things being thrown out the window because Satan has perverted the world and turned people from believing in the Son of God. And so it makes its own standard in the likeness of its father, the devil. That's what you're seeing. That's what's happening. You can either get frustrated with that or you can engage in it and do what Peter is doing here and pressing in on the gospel. Do you trust him? Do you trust the spirit to do his work in you? Are you leaning in on him, facing the coming pressure and the opposition of where you live, work, and play? Are you preparing your mind with the word of God, in other words? Here's principle number three, verses 9 through 14. Again, if we are being examined concerning good deeds done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel this day the name of Jesus, uh, by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Here it is again. He's hammering him. He just goes right back to this. You crucified whom God raised from the dead. By him this man stands before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. <laughs> Silence of ignorance and foolish people, right? What this leads to is your boldness or the lack thereof in our lives. See, there is no tempering of Peter's message. He just comes right back around. They already told him not to do this. Don't talk. They can only mention his name. Don't speak in that name anymore. And he turns right back around and delivers the same message right back to him. There is no backing down. And Peter mentions, we all saw it, we all walked with him, we talked with Jesus. You all saw this too in his ministry. You got to remember, look at Acts chapter 4. This is barely a month after the resurrection, after the trial, after the crucifixion. It's not that long ago. Those Jewish leaders he's referring to were firsthand witnesses of all that Jesus did. And Peter knows and is referring to that. You murdered him, but God raised him from the dead. You rejected him, just like your fathers did, just like your fathers before you did. Why is he doing this? Because you have to repent. You've got to be bold enough to lay it out there. 
because sinners must be indicted to see if there's sin. Otherwise, there's no repentance. And that's the tension we're seeing today, I believe. That's the message. But it's the message that's under attack. And, I'm, and, and again, I'll be told today, you're not very loving. That's what I'm told. Use them, again, my response, and I hope you're getting this, is by whose standard? How are you defining love? Which we'll get to, one, that'll be one of those two. See, that's the answer of the unrepentant. You're not loving. Why? Because it's a message they don't want to hear. Because it's the message of Romans 1. And they have no other option, according to Romans 1, but to suppress the truth. Remember the beach ball? It's like the pool in your backyard, everything, all the floaties float, right? It's this idea that you actively have to sit on, compress, and hold the beach ball under the water. That's this idea Paul is getting at in Romans 1. You physically, mentally, emotionally suppress it. It's the only way you can do life. What's also interesting is verse 13. Again, this is, I think, why this hacked them off, the, the Sadducees, is because Peter, John, they were uneducated. What were they? They were fishermen. That's what they were. They were just ordinary guys. They didn't go to the right school. They didn't get the right degrees. They were common. They weren't part of the cool kids in school. They weren't the experts. They weren't the elites. But what did they recognize about them? But they had to confess who their teacher was. Verse 14. And what was the results again? They shut him up. Just like Peter said in his letter last week. They were muzzled. The ignorance of the foolish was shut up because they had no place to go. Listen, beloved, this is not the time in our culture and our present where we are currently. This is not the time to be timid. It's not the time to wonder, but it's a time just like Peter to press the message of the gospel to be bold, to stand up, to wake up. It's being forced on you whether you like it or not. The lines are getting cleaner and crisper in this society. And you will have to make a decision. Wherever that is for you, whatever, whatever variance that is for you, you will come to a point where you have to decide to stand up or not. Will you crave the holiness of God and honor him or will you crave the honor of sinful men? Again, there are no secret, secret disciples. And you certainly don't want to be lukewarm, according to Revelation chapter 3. Years ago, I had this poster I made for a student ministry. <laughs> it still makes me laugh. Just so they could remember the whole idea of lukewarmness. So it's, um, it says, it has the verse, uh, Revelation 13, 16, um, don't be lukewarm. But it just converted it into a teen's language. Don't be puke. So it has this guy kind of, you know, doing that. But they remembered it. The point was, you, you got to decide. You got you to know who you belong to. Because he's going to spit you out of your mouth if you don't. Amen. I don't know if this is the most effective persecution that you and I face. But it, if it is, I, again, I'd have to, I just need to have to process it a little bit more maybe. But I think what it, the persecution that you and I face in this culture is what allows for lukewarm Christianity. Assaultlessness 
life, an insepidness into our life. I think that's more effective than actual being martyred. And my only reference to that is the prophet of Balaam. If you go back to the Old Testament, he's being paid to curse Israel by the king. Um, I can't remember what king it was. It wasn't the king of Israel. Moab, maybe, I'm not, I don't remember. So he gets paid off, right? Lots of money to go curse them. God doesn't allow him to do that, though, does he? He can't. Which really hacks the king off, right? Because you've been paid to do this. Now he's upset. And, he, and he, Balaam tries to explain to him, I can't. I just, I, there's no way. I can't do that. He, God's not allowing me to do that. But then Balaam gets this idea. But I can tell you how God will curse Israel. And what does he do? He explains the whole plan. Get them to get away from serving God in the way he's prescribed. Get them to intermarry. Get them to eat other things. Get them to honor your gods. And then God will judge Israel and destroy them for you. And that's the plan that gets put in place. And so Balaam tells the king how God would bring judgment on a nation. They blended with all the other nations around us. Does that make sense? This, this idea that the clarity in our lives isn't so clear. It doesn't stand out like it should. Principle number four. Obedience no matter what. I'll finish with this one because there's no way I'm going to get done today. <laughs> See, you're not in control. You are not in control. Does that scare you? For some of you, it does. <laughs> right? What aren't you in control of? You aren't in control of the actions of those authorities over you, the government or whoever God is. And even when they are godless and pursuing godlessness, as many are today, God is still sovereign over everything that's happening, and you as a believer in Jesus Christ should know that. He is bringing this world to its final conclusion, to its final end, where everything will be brought to his feet. It seems to me currently what is being brought to his feet is this idea of what this nation is pursuing, and that is full-out secularism and everywhere it goes. And he is bringing it to say, this is the conclusion that it comes to and if you're watching, it's not a good conclusion. But he is bringing them all to his feet to bow. And therefore, beloved, we don't need to fear. This, let me say it this way. Life is more than what we believe it to be, and death is far less than what it claims. Does that make sense? All we see is this life, and we think, oh, this is it. This is not it. This is just a shadow of what to come. And then we make so much out of death that that's the end. Death is not the end for those who believe in Jesus Christ. The current state we are in, in this life we are living, this is not all there is. There is more that is found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of what he did at the resurrection, death is now not the end, but only to the beginning of those who believe. Jesus said this, don't be afraid, don't worry, don't be anxious. And we can roll that off our lips just like that. And you're like, what? Do you not understand what's happening? Yep, I do. 
aren't you, are, are you the least bit worried? Well, yeah, in the sense that I am, especially now my grandkids, my height, my senses, you know, it's like, ugh, right? But I understand God's in control of all of it. He's orchestrating it all for his own ends. Jesus says, seek the kingdom even when it's hard and all those other things will be added unto you. This is the Christian life. Just read church history. You think it's, you think it's hard here? Really? Maybe we should do a mission trip somewhere and we can see how truly hard it can be. Or just read the book of Acts. And what happens to James when he gets cut open because he won't back down from the message? I mean, you understand that. All of church history is littered with people who were martyred for the name of Jesus Christ. When it gets bad in my life, you know, I'm so gracious that my, my, my parents were here visiting last week. They're, you know, um, in their early 90s. And I am so thankful for that. Um, and yet, when my life gets, you know, I, I, I'm... And I'm saying that I just appreciate being able to still talk to my dad, right? That to me is a really cool thing. And I understand not everybody can do that. But when it gets difficult for me, when I get frustrated, when I just get, and I want to slip back into, okay, I want to do this, this, and this, and not let, you know, God do his thing, my dad will politely somewhat remind me when life gets hard. He's like, so, have you suffered and bled for Jesus Christ yet? No, Dad, I haven't. Well, what's your problem? <laughs> and it's not that bad. And he's referring to everything that happened to Paul, all those things. That's usually where that conversations go. And I, you know, it turns into a pity party for me. And he'll just, he'll just let me roll for a little bit. And then he'll stop and go, really? Anything, anything remotely close to what Paul suffered, Peter, the apostles? No. <laughs> and get back in the game. God's got it under control. Be obedient no matter what. Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth and knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That takes a lot for me to process. Because honestly, I don't know if I'm there. Have I truly suffered everything like Paul? That's the, that's the understanding. Paul goes on, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Jesus Christ that depends on faith, that I may know the power of the resurrection and share his sufferings. That is so foreign. That is just like foreign language. I want to squirt out the side. I truly do. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to feel the pain. I don't want that in my life. I just want it to be good. Right? That's what I'm after. But when it comes, I pray I can endure. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is where James comes in. James 1, count it all joy when you meet various trials. I want to run away from them, don't you? That's my instinct to go, nope, I don't want that. We have to understand in those moments, God is doing something in you and through you, and it's the production of your faith. Now how happy you are, now how much things and stuff you have, 
Now, how grand all this life is because this life is passing away. It is to produce a godliness in you. And if the means in which that has to come is through the suffering, then I will endure it. I will be obedient through it all. That's what he's getting at. What's the world desire? If you look at verse 21, I'll finish with this. What, they, what do they want to do in verse 21, Acts 4? They want to punish. That's what they want to do. They further threatened them to let them go and finding no way to punish them because of the people. We're all praising God. The world wants to punish anyone who stands up to them and says, nope, God is the standard. The gospel is the way. Jesus is the only way. You must submit to him. The world doesn't like that, and they want to punish. Why don't they punish? Because everybody's praising God because Peter healed a 40-year-old crippled man. There is this progression from chapter 2 to chapter 5 and so on. The punishment's coming, but it hasn't shown up yet. They want to, but they don't have a means to do it yet, right? In chapter 2, they're all praising God and thinking, hey, everybody's great because all these really cool things are happening. Now this happens. Now they're embarrassed, the worldly uh, uh, officials. So they can't really flat out just, you know, yank them around but they threaten them, and they want to, but they can't. But that comes in chapter 5, chapter 6, the stoning of Stephen. That's when it starts to show up. And so you get this progression taking place. Can you be obedient? All my point is this morning is, wherever you are this morning, are you prepared? And how are you preparing yourself for the pressure that's coming that's already here in our culture. It is no longer popular, maybe it ever was, but it doesn't benefit your career, it doesn't benefit your anything to say, yep, I believe in Jesus Christ. That's not where we are in culture. How are you preparing for that? How are you preparing your grandkids if you have them, your kids in school, to deal with what's out there and what's coming. And so this is the conversation we'll have over the next, I don't know how long it's going to take. But I'm just going to kind of pop some things in here before we get back to Mark chapter 8. Persecution is a real thing. Maybe not how you read it in the scripture, maybe not here, not for you yet. But I know your kids feel it in the questions that they're asking and what's taking place. I know some of you are, because if I said that, I don't know if my boss would appreciate that. I could, you know, have a conversation with HR. I mean, it's happening. How prepared are you? See, persecution isn't necessarily a bad thing because one of the blessings is it brings a people together in unity. Where are you in the process? I'll just share these. That's the that's principle number five. It brings the fellowship of the saints. Principle number six is what did they do? They were thankful. Through all of this, they were thankful. Principle number seven, they asked for more. And that runs us out through the rest of the chapter. Can you believe that? God, give us more boldness. They go home praising, praising what happened. They were thankful. They quote Psalms chapter two through this process. And then what is their prayer? God, give us more boldness. This is gonna keep happening. And they make the connection. It's gonna get harder to do. 
People are, not yet, but people are soon about to die. Stephen's going to be the first one. They see this. They recognize where they're at in their culture. They know this is coming. How are you going to be prepared? Do you know Jesus Christ? Listen, if you haven't prepped for eternal life, I'm begging you, repent. He is bringing and desiring with open arms. Do you know him? Father, thank you for your gift of mercy and grace. Father, thank you for your love in us and through us, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we've been talking about. And now what that means to those who have been called by you to expect to not be shocked by what is taking place when a people no longer praise you and glorify you for the good things you've done, have done in this place as a people, but now have completely rejected who you are and the persecution that follows when that happens. So God, I pray as a church that we would become more understanding. God, give us the boldness that we need to speak the truth in love, but to proclaim the message just like Peter, that there is no other name whereby you must be saved. And you can try to redefine all kinds of things, but that is irrelevant because you will bend the knee to Jesus Christ. God, I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet done that, not submitted their lives to you, not begged and pleaded and recognized how wretched they are in their sin, that they stand in judgment of eternal hell, that you would break through their heart today to call on your name, to be restored unto yourself. Father, thank you that we can celebrate the gift of life in Jesus Christ. His name I pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we